Good morning. What is today? What? What? Sunday? What? What's special about this Sunday? Is it because it's the Super Bowl? No, it's not because it's Super Bowl Sunday. It's because it's Lord's Supper Sunday. That's why it's special. That's right. That's right. That's right. All right. Welcome. Welcome. I am very excited, far more excited about Lord's Supper than the Super Bowl, though I'm excited about the Super Bowl, too. And not so much because of the game, but because I get to hang out with you guys. And any reason to hang out with you guys is always a good time. So uh, we're in 1 Timothy 2, 11 through 15. It will probably be on the screen. It was also in your bulletin if you don't have it. A few things before we launch into it. What begins this week, Wednesday? Lent. Lent begins this week, Wednesday, in preparation for Easter. Now, you're like, wait a second, why is he talking about Lent? Did we come to the right church? Is this the Baptist church? Or Yes, it is the Baptist church. And Lent, although Catholics do, are the main ones who do it and practice it, uh, they don't have the monopoly on it, all right? At its root... Lent is really just a preparation, preparing our hearts in some way, shape, or form for Easter. And so I'm not saying you have to go down to uh, Christ the King over here and uh, get, you know, ash on your head or anything like that. I'm not saying that on, in the few weeks to come. I am saying, hey, it may be uh, good to prepare our hearts for Easter. Amen? Prepare our hearts coming March to, for the most important day of the Christian year where we commemorate the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, the forgiveness of our sins and his conquering of death. So, however the Lord leads you, there's all sorts of good resources. Um, you can look up a book called Lenten Lights by Noel Piper and many others. They've done some great things to help you prepare your heart and your family for Easter coming up this Wednesday. All right, this passage before us, let's jump into it. It is, not only is it controversial because of what it says and the implications in our day and age, it is also extremely difficult to translate, particularly verse 15. Uh, commentators are all over the board, not so much in 11 through 14, but verse 15 as to what it means and how it should be translated. Yet she will be saved through childbearing, Yet that being the woman or women, if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Many, many struggle with that passage. It's highly debated, and the overall passage is controversial. One of the main reasons is because in our modern, developed, Western culture, we kick against any form of authority in our life, even, or much more, rather, those that would make a distinction between male and female gender roles. We call this egalitarianism. That's a fancy word, so you can go home and sound very smart. Egalitarianism. Uh, we, this mindset that there is no distinction between male, female genders, that they're all 100% equal and interchangeable, has definitely, definitely trickled into the church. And it was actually trickling... 2,000 years ago into the church at Ephesus. And so if you remember, I want to catch you up to speed because if this is your first time with us, we've been walking through the book of 1 Timothy. Timothy is not a book, it's actually a 
letter, letter written from Paul to Timothy to deal with some issues that had arisen in the church at Ephesus. Now, just to catch up to speed on Ephesus, Ephesus is a major, major player in the region, all right? You know the book of Ephesians, right? That is written to the church at Ephesus, and it's a wonderful, majestic book. And some years later, Paul says in Acts 20, he predicts that false teachers will arise from within the church and will tear the church apart, not sparing the flock, wolves in sheep's clothing. And that's exactly what happened. And so Paul leaves his number one protege, his sidekick, his child in the faith, Timothy, at Ephesus to set things in order. And he writes to address a number of false teachings. Paul spent all of chapter 1 and the first portion of chapter 2 addressing men, men in the congregation. And he's going to return to address the men in chapter 3. So before I even launch into talking about women and their role in the church, please know you're not getting picked on. Paul spent a whole chapter, and we can say many more chapters in the scriptures dealing with men. Amen, men? Amen, all right? You guys get it all the time, right? So, um, and for good reason. We'll talk about that this week, too. But in our passage this week and last week, Paul turns his attention to the women in the church. Last week, we addressed the issue of modesty, all right? Modesty. You can check out that sermon Online, if you missed it, Paul dealt with uh, flamboyant clothing and things of this nature during times of worship that were distraction. Today, today we will discuss the issue of the women's role in the life of the church. Or put it another way, does the Bible permit women to be elders or pastors? If not, what can they do? Or why not? So this is actually pretty controversial. One of the reasons, is, or one of the things, is this sets us apart in our church and many other churches, not just Baptist churches, but many others, um, who still hold that women cannot be pastors. And there are many, many, many other churches that have fallen on this, and we would say departed from the scriptural teaching concerning women's role in the pastor, and they have actually allowed that. So you can go to any number of churches down the street, around the block, in other areas of our island, and you will find uh, pastor, female, so-and-so. And this is going to address that text, or this text will address that issue directly today. So let's pray, because we need help, we need humility to hear God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that we come before your word today not as 21st century critiques or judges as to what we think your word ought to say, but may we come under your word. May we sit underneath it and receive what your spirit has to say as good, because you are good. And you mean good for us and for your church. So may we trust you, may we uh, hear your voice calling us through the scriptures, may we see that you don't put women down, but you raise them up. You raise them with Christ above all. And we praise you for that. And we pray that the men in our church, that we would esteem them highly, that we would love them, that we would show them honor as our sisters who are created as co-heirs of eternal life in your image and likeness. In Jesus' name, amen. We already saw last week that God loves women. Amen? 
Okay, God loves loves his daughters in the kingdom such that in 1 Peter chapter 3 he tells the men if you are unkind with your wife you do not live with them in an understanding way God even threatens almighty God says I will not hear your prayers men that's a bi- I think that's a big deal I think that's a big deal and I think it makes perfect sense imagine my daughter Scarlett back there I love her to death she's, she's one now and imagine when she's you know 18 or something like that and you have some some guy, some punk dude, like maybe Parker or something, running around my house, right? <laughs> no, I'm kidding, right? Uh, a friend of Titus or something, <laughs> right? Running around my house, and uh, he's like, you know, checking out my daughter, and they're being really, not Parker, Parker wouldn't do this, but being really mean to her and unkind to her and dealing harshly with her, and then all of a sudden they come and they want to talk to dad and ask dad to help him with 20 bucks. What do you think dad's going to do? Yeah. The, the, the shotgun's going to come out again, all right, and blow the dust off, all right? You're going to get the wrath, not of pastor, but of dad, all right? I'm going to be dad in that time. And they do, don't talk to me. You talk to my daughter like that. And that's essentially what God says. You treat my daughters as anything but women in the image and likeness of me. I'm not going to hear your prayers. It's intense. God loves women. So don't hear anything but that come out uh, this morning, I hope. Here's the big idea. God's good design includes women learning with the church, but not leading it. So God's good design includes women learning with, don't miss that, with the church, not leading it, however. And I'll unpack that more for you. Our Baptist faith and messages, our articles of faith, uh, crystallize it like this in section Four, section four, the church. And I quote, while both men and women are gifted for service in the church, the office of pastor is limited to men as qualified by scripture. So this isn't an issue of giftings. This isn't an issue of who's smarter or who's not smarter or superiority or inferiority or any of those things. Men and women, yes, both made. God made them male and female. He created them in his image and likeness. Therefore, all men, all women equal of worth and value and dignity and all of these different things. It's not an issue of competencies. It's an issue of design. It's an issue of design. Did God have a design in creation? We would look at Scripture and say, yes. And I hope that becomes clear this morning. And so I also hope that you don't walk out of here saying, man, they believe this because they're Baptists. No, we believe this because this is the clear testimony of Scripture. And we are a people who are defined by sola scriptura. The Scriptures alone are our standards of faith, and practice. So let's see the scriptural basis regarding this. Verse 11, the command, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. There's a command and there's a qualifier. What's the command? Let a woman learn. Now, it doesn't sound like a command. It actually sounds like a suggestion in our English translations, but they kind of obscure the underlying construction. It actually carries the force of a command, such that you could translate it, I command the women to learn with quietness and all submission. So let's not bypass. Our minds want to go to quiet with all submissiveness, but let's not bypass the first statement, let a woman 
learn. You say, wow, I, I'm just missing it, Pastor Randy. I'm, I'm not seeing the significance of that. Here's the significance of it, all right? To say, let a woman learn to our 21st century minds is totally taken for granted. Why is it taken for granted? Because it misses the fact that for, throughout most world history, and even today in many countries, it is not a priority to let women learn anything. To let women go to schools, to teach them distinctively, to encourage them to absorb all these information. It never has been in the history of the world. So for Paul to write this in his day and age, and in ours, but less in ours, more in his, let a woman learn is huge. He's not oppressing women. He is lifting them up. You know, women could not in his day and age be, even be witnesses in a court of law. They were considered uneducated, given to myths and things of this nature. And yet here he is saying, let them learn. Don't withhold them. Don't kick them out of the congregation. Don't treat them as separate uh, class, second class citizens. Let them learn. Galatians 3.28, Paul says, There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's, neither, there's no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, I'm aware that those who disagree with me on this will point to that verse right there and say, yeah, that's why women can be pastors. And I'll say, no, 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 no. The context is women are co-equal, co-heirs, co-inheritors of the grace of God and salvation. There is no difference whether you're Jew, Greek, male, female, rich, poor, young, old, doesn't matter. All peoples are invited to salvation in Christ. There's no distinction in that regard. So don't miss, let a woman learn is huge. You are invited, ladies, our sisters in Christ. We invite you here with us, learn, and learn as much as you can. And I hope that by the end of it, you'll see why it's very important. But then he gives a qualifier. Not just let a woman learn, but let her learn with quietness and all submission, or quietly with all submissiveness. Now, this is not absolute silence. Some of your translations may say, let a woman learn in silence with all submissiveness. That word silence carries with it the connotation of say anything. And so some in the history of the church have, I would say, incorrectly interpreted this to say, women, as soon as you walk in the doors, do not say a word. You're not to say anything. You can't read the Bible. You can't pray. You can't do anything. I would say that is a misinterpretation of this verse. It's not meaning absolute silence. Amen, women? Amen, that's right. <laughs> right? Amen, right? It's not meaning absolute silence silence. What it means is a state or disposition of not quarreling. A state or disposition of not attempting to take that which is not her own. How do I know that? Because verse 2 of the same chapter says this. Uh, First of all, in our prayers and all these things be made for all people. And then he says, verse 2, for kings and all who are in high positions. Why? So that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life. You get that? A peaceful and quiet. That's the same word, same Greek word that we just had in our verse, quiet life. Now, Paul there is not telling Christians to live the life of a mime. 
right? Well, I'm bad at this, okay? Right? Paul's not saying, I'm not a mime, all right? I'm not a mime. I'm a pastor, right? I'm not saying, and Paul's not saying that we should live that life like that, okay? It's not what we do. It's a, a serenity that is present in our dispositions that we are not a quarrelsome people. We're not trying to constantly usurp the throne or the government. We are a quiet people. And that's the same exact word Paul uses for women. So that's the qualifier. A woman is to learn in quietness or quietly with all submission. Now again, Paul's addressing an issue at the church in Ephesus. The women would not enter the church quietly, right? They entered with flamboyant dress. Long before they said a word, their dress preceded them, and everybody saw the message. Wow. And likely, these women were, in fact, challenging the God-appointed authority in the church. And so Paul says, yes, you may learn, and it must be in quietness with all submission. And then he gives two prohibitions along the same line. Two prohibitions in verse 12. And this is where we would get our stance that women cannot be pastors. Verse 12. I do not permit. So he gave one thing he does permit. Let them learn. And then verse 12. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. So two prohibitions. One, I do not permit a woman to teach. Two, I do not permit a woman to exercise authority over a man. Let's take each of those in turn. I do not permit a woman to teach. Now, does he mean all kinds of teaching? That would be the first question that comes up. What does he mean by teach? Thus, Paul, it might be helpful to examine what other things Paul says to determine what he means by I do not permit a woman to teach. Well, in 2 Timothy chapter 1 and 3, clearly he encourages the teaching of children. Remember to young Timothy, he says, Remember from whom you learned the scriptures, from Eunice and Lois. Women, don't wipe away your ability to have a profound impact on this world through the teaching and bringing up of godly children in the scriptures. Profound impact. So he allows them to teach children. He also, in the book of Titus, chapter 2, he allows older women, he actually commands older women to teach younger women. So we know that he clearly doesn't have in mind the teaching of women and children in this passage because in another letter, in the same author, he commands women to teach women and children. We could also look at, maybe your mind goes to Priscilla and Aquila who, in the book of Acts, pulled the Apollos, the great preacher Apollos, off to the side, a man. Priscilla listed first the wife and Aquila, her husband. Pulled him off to the side and taught to him the word of God more accurately and that this was a good thing in private. So, perhaps private exhortations or teachings, conversations between men and women of God about the scriptures are very much justifiable. There's many times that I wish I had Paula Higuchi, and I could mention other women, right? But Paula, up there in the back, Paula, wave your hand. Hi, Paula. That's Paula. We all know Paula, right? Paula just got back with her master's in biblical counseling from Southern Seminary, okay? I have no doubt she can go toe-to-toe with me. Again, it's not an issue of competencies. She can probably go toe-to-toe with me in biblical knowledge. She's sharp. 
There's many times I wish I had Paula right there so I could bounce some ideas off of Paula, okay? She's sharp, and that would be a good thing in which she would teach me many things. And I would say yes and amen. And many of you other ladies, I'm not, not saying you guys couldn't teach me anything. So the idea of private exhortation clearly is not in view. Or what about the Great Commission? More positively stated, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And here it is, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. Is that only for men? No, we would say no. We would say the Great Commission is for our men and women, our sisters in Christ. You fulfill the Great Commission. Teaching, which means women have to learn, and they also have to teach. So what exactly, then, is he prohibiting here? What he's prohibiting is a type of teaching that somehow relates to the exercising of authority over men. So maybe let's turn our eyes to that and see if that helps us. I do not permit a woman to teach and to exercise authority over a man. Not all of exercising authority in my position is related to teaching. But that is the central function of what I do. Now these two functions, the exercising of authority, along with teaching, are really what define the role of a pastor. It's what has me up here and you down there doesn't mean I'm better than you. doesn't mean I'm smarter than you or more experienced than you. It means this is my particular role, and my role in the life of the church is to teach and oversee. This is actually clearly seen in 1 Timothy chapter 3. Go flip over there. It's like one page over or next paragraph down. 1 Timothy chapter 3. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer. Interesting. Does that say pastor? No says what? Overseer. It's the word underneath it where we get our English word for bishop from. It means an overseer. One of my jobs is oversight. Overseeing. This is also seen in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17. Go there. Flip over there. It's one or two chapters over. 1 Timothy 5, 17. It starts, let the elders, that would be another word for pastor, by the way, let the elders who, what's the next word? Rule. Let the elders who rule, or you could say govern or oversee, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor. So one of my functions as an office is designed in what? Exercising authority, governing, oversight. The second function, or one of the how I exercise authority and oversight is through teaching. And so the qualifications, if you're to read 1 Timothy 3, and we're going to spend two weeks on this, by the way, the qualifications for a pastor, I have to be able to teach. If I am a good guy, if I love Jesus, if, if I'm godly, if I walk on water, but if I can't teach, I can't be a pastor. I have to be able to teach because that is inherent in this role. So these two together, teaching and exercising authority, is what Paul is prohibiting. And so we could say it like this. What is prohibited to women is the primarily the office of an elder or pastor where these two things, teaching and exercising authority, 
come together. And this is prohibited to women in the life of the body. Does that make sense? By the way, it's not just prohibited to women. It is prohibited to men who don't meet the qualifications. Tracking with me? All right, all right. Now, what are his reasons? What are his reasons, right? Because we can see that, and it's clear enough. It says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man, such as in the office of the elder. And it's no accident that this is chapter 2, and the very next verse is chapter 3, verse 1. And he's dealing with pastoral qualifications. I think that's exactly what Paul has in mind. And now he gets into his reasons. Because we could say, and this is actually what's said today, that that's just a cultural thing, Pastor Randy. Don't you know Paul is writing to deal with this cultural situation in Ephesus and that that was a different day and now this is 2016, almost 2,000 years later, and we're quite a bit different now. That was a cultural mandate. I mean, doesn't Romans chapter 16 say, greet one another with a holy kiss? Was anybody kissed this morning when he came in? Maybe a few of you, maybe some of you weren't, right? When you walked in, did we kiss you like, hey, right? No, we didn't do that, but it's a command. Why didn't we do that? Because it's a cultural command. So we would say, greet one another with a holy hug, all right? Hug, not handshake, handshakes for the mainland, right? So when we have mainlanders, any mainlanders in here? If you're from the mainland, raise your hand, right? Okay, so when you first visit our church, it's very common to see, uh, and this was me too, by the way, when I came, to see people from the mainland come, and they go like this. And what do people here do? Brothers don't shake hands. Brothers got a hug, right? Right? So we go and we hug. Sorry for the reference, right? But that's what we do. We, we hug, and so we greet each other with a holy hug, so to speak. It's a cultural condition. Now, how do we know this is not a cultural condition either? How do we know? Paul gives his command, let a woman learn. He gives his two prohibitions, and he gives his two reasons. And those reasons are not rooted in culture. They're rooted in creation. They're rooted in Genesis chapter 1 through 3. Paul looks back on that account. We're going to walk through it in a second. He looks back on that account. And he sees a divine design in the order of creation that is binding for all cultures, all peoples, and all times. And he doesn't do that with other things. So let's check that out. Let's check out uh, that argument. So Paul looks in verse 13, says, For Adam was formed first, then Eve. You see that four, that's a big, I'm linking, this is the basis of my command, my argument is founded on this reality for Adam was formed first then Eve and then verse 14 is his second reason and Adam was not deceived but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor now that doesn't mean this is another not good teaching on this passage it doesn't mean that women are more gullible than men all right doesn't mean that, oh, poor women, they're just so easily tricked and duped, okay? That's not what this passage is teaching. This passage likely refers to Eve's taking Adam's leadership role and dialoguing with the serpent and engaging the tempter. That's likely what he's referring to. 
I'm going to give you 10 pointers from Genesis chapters 1 through 3, 10 pointers to a difference in God's design in male and female gender roles. This is going to fly right against our culture, by the way. I'm going to find 10 pointers to differences in God's gender role or God's design in the roles of gender. Number one. Paul draws from this right here, verse 13. For Adam was created first in an entirely different manner than Eve. So Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, looks at Genesis chapter 1 and 2 and sees how God created Adam from the dust of the ground. He molded him and formed him, and then he breathed in him the breath of life. There's like this dance over there, ha, the breath of life, or production, right? He breathed into Adam, and he became a living soul. Now, could God, could he have just made them both at the same time? Right? Could he have just man and woman at the same time? Boom, both of you living soul at the same time. He could have, and that would have probably been very instructive had he, but he didn't. And Paul, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, sees a lesson in this. Not only was he created first, he was created in an entirely different manner than Eve. Eve was created how? God took Adam, he brought him into a deep sleep, first surgery in the Bible, he pulled out a rib from the side, and he fashioned the woman. Created in an entirely different manner. Adam was created first, then Eve. Number two, Genesis 1.26 calls the generic term for this race of beings, Adam. Adam becomes the name, the generic term for all of humankind, Adam, to include both male and female underneath that umbrella term. It also becomes his own proper name. That's the second pointer. Number three, Adam names Eve. You say, that's not really that significant. It's actually very significant in his time and in ours. Adam names Eve. See, in the Old Testament, your naming of something, and this is true today, your naming of something identifies your authority over that something. So I had a baby, I had two of them, and I'm about to have now three. And guess who names those children? Me, all right? You don't get to name those children. Why? Because they're my children. Now, sometimes people try to name your children, but nonetheless, at the end of the day, whose job is it to name your children? Parents. Why? Because I own you, dude, all right? Titus, whenever you disobey Scarlet, they disobey our children. I own you, brother, right? And we say things like, I brought you into this world and I can... Take you out, all right? Why? Because you own them, all right? In some way, shape, or form. You have a headship over them. Some, we, we name our dogs. Why? Because we own them. We name our cars, all right? That shows that we own them. I don't name your car, all right? You name your own car. I might have a name for your car, but you don't want to hear it, right? No. Um, all these things, even then, as it is now, when we name something, it depicts our authority over it. Number four. God gives instructions regarding the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He gives those instructions to Adam, not to Eve. Adam was, was expected to teach his wife. Number five, Eve was made and identified as Adam's helper 
fit for him, which means from the very earliest time, women found their identity in relation to men and their role of helper, and they would together exercise dominion over creation. Number six, Eve was not formed out of the ground like Adam, but from her rib. Her identity, again, is seen in her relation to the man. Number seven, after Adam and Eve eat of the tree, you guys know the story, who ate first? Eve. Eve ate of the fruit first. But after it, when God comes walking through the garden, who does he call to account for it? Adam. Why didn't he call Eve? He instead, even though Eve ate first, he calls Adam to account. Again, pointing to God's design in the roles. He created the man to have a leadership, Christ-like, servant-oriented role. Number eight. The serpent attacked God's design for gender by engaging with Eve, not Adam. You understand, God attacked, God, or Satan attacked God's design for genders by opening this dialogue, by targeting Eve, not Adam. He usurped the created order. This is actually what Paul refers to in verse 14 when he says, Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. I would say that likely is referring to the fact that Adam was not the one who engaged with the serpent. It was the woman who engaged with the deceiver and as such became deceived. Number nine, Romans 5, Romans chapter 5, looks back to Adam as ultimately responsible for sin's entrance into the world, not Eve. In Adam, it says, all die. And number 10, in 1 Corinthians 11 and 14, when Paul states that the head of every wife is her husband, he's appealing to creation, not culture. The fact that her authority is owning to the fact that she was created from man and for man, not the other way around. So all these ten pointers are pointing to the fact that God had a design in his order of creation for male and female, and the two are not interchangeable at every point. There's overlap, but they're not interchangeable. And this in no way diminishes the value of women. This is based on the Trinitarian relationship. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. All equal in divinity, equal in essence, equal in divine nature, cut from the same cloth, you could say, and yet three distinct beings, the Father and the Son, and the Son submits perfectly to the will of the Father. Is he inferior to the Father? No. There's a perfect harmony in their relationship that is worked out in creation, that's worked out in redemption, that's worked out in glorification. And this is where our patterns of our home and creation find themselves expressed. Equal in status, different roles. This is also reflected in marriage, as seen in Genesis and Ephesians chapter 5. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Right? 
This is reflected in Ephesians chapter 5. So we can say if gender roles are good, and they're good because they're designed by God, then we would expect these gender roles to impact the family you see. And if they impact the family, then it would make sense that that order would impact the church, which is the family of God. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse what is it, 15, it says this, quote, You may know how, he's saying, I'm writing this so that you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. So over and over throughout the epistles, Paul is referring and God is referring to the church as his people, his body, his family. This is his household of the living God. And just as there is carryover in the family in those regards, there's also carryover and gender roles. This is another reason why as a qualification for a pastor, a pastor has to be able to demonstrate that he can manage his own household well. So I've told you this before, when I became the pastor, you guys, actually there was a group of people that interviewed my wife, and I wasn't in there. I wasn't in there to be like, better answer right. Right? I wasn't in there. They, they interviewed her. Why? Because they have to show, I have to show that I have stewarded well the household God has given me. Why? Because the same principles will carry over in my management of my family and my children to God's church, you see? And as do the gender roles. Quote, one pastor put it like this, the life of the church never overthrows, but rather enhances the life of the family based on God's design from creation. You tracking with me? You guys hanging in there? All right, I hope I didn't lose anybody. Let's get into some application. So we would say yes and amen. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she's to remain quiet. So the question often comes, well, what can they do then? We'll get to that in a second. But before we get there, let me caution. When we abandon the teachings of Scripture, when we twist the teachings of Scripture, we do so at great cost, beloved. And that cost is not always seen in the initial departure. It's often seen as it goes out and out and out. This is exactly what we're seeing in the culture within evangelicalism today. It may first seem like there's no harm, but the flattening or denial of gender roles in the home and the church open wide the door for Satan's attacks to ruin and overthrow the church, just as in Genesis chapter 3. Do you realize the greatest threat to your marriage if you're married, or if you hope to be married one day, the greatest threat to your marriage is not the homosexual agenda. The greatest threat to your marriage is not who's going to be president this year. The greatest threat to your marriage is not taxes or any sort of persecution that comes from out there. The greatest threat to your marriage will be this inherent desire from the fall in men and women to distort their gender roles. That will be the greatest threat to your marriage. It'll be from women who desire 
the position to rule in the household and do so through anger, manipulation, and many other sorts of wrong behavior. It'll also come from men who desire to exercise that authority in unchristlike, harsh ways or from men who desire to just passively relegate all responsibility to my wife. Yeah, let her do it. Let her talk to the serpent. The greatest threat to your marriage is, one of them is, the twisting of gender roles in the home. The same is true of the church. Once we deny the goodness of gender or say that they're all the same, that everything can do the same, this will inevitably, as it continues to track out, this will inevitably lead to the affirmation of so-called same-sex marriage in churches. This is true. It is already happening across our nation. You just track it. Why does that happen inevitably? Because the same arguments used to say that women can become pastors are the exact same arguments that are used to say it's okay for two men to marry each other now. And those arguments say, oh, that's just a cultural thing of the time. It's not binding today. It's just a cultural thing. And all the same-sex marriage argument within Christianity is doing is extrapolating that and saying, well, us too. It's just the same thing. That's a cultural thing of the day. They point to the same passages. That's why this is extremely dangerous to do. So returning to the question in closing, how can we apply this? How can we apply this positively? Women, we need you to learn, and women, we need you to teach. We need, hear, hear me from a man saying, we need you to learn, we need you to teach, and we even need you to lead in the church, just not in the sense of pastoral functions. So what can you do then? What can you do? Everything else. Everything else. Pray. Lead music. I would say serve as deacons. We'll talk about that in a few weeks. And many, many more. You may say, how can we question if a woman is called by God to be a pastor? Right? You'll, you'll encounter this. How, can you, how dare you question God's call on my life? How dare you? And we would say and respond graciously and gently, It may not be that God has not called you to ministry. He may have. He may have. You may have a divine calling on your life. However, I'd offer to you the possibility and to any women serving in churches right now as pastors, the possibility they have misread their call. See, all callings to pastoral ministry are subjective. In other words, you can't look at me and verify, yes, Pastor Randy heard a call from God or has some sort of divine call. You can't see that, but all callings, including Paul's, subjectively called, are tested objectively against the Scriptures. Such that we would say that the God who wrote 1 Timothy chapter 2 is not the God who would call a woman to pastoral ministry. Ministry, yes, but possibly not the pastorate. He will not give contradictory messages. So it may be that they misread their call. So what can they do? John Piper makes the following helpful point. What can you do, women? Are you being kept from ministry? Are you being oppressed? What can you do if you cannot pastor? 75% of the 7 billion people on this planet, 
75% of them are women and children under the age of 15. For some more accurate numbers, that is 5.25 billion people that you can minister as freely as you want to. You can do whatever the Holy Spirit leads you to do. And many of them have been so abused and used by men as sex slaves and mistreated in other ways that it would be nearly impossible for a man like me to give them the good news of Jesus Christ. But you can make inroads where I cannot. 5.25 billion people on the planet that you can minister and teach to your heart is satisfied. Do whatever you want. We need you to do it. We need you to play a part in this great commission. And men, we need to make it a priority to teach them. We need the gospel explained and applied. So I ask you women, do you know it? Do you know the gospel? Are you learning? Or are you giving yourself your time to temporal things, soap operas and social medias and and games of what is a game called with the cubes and the I don't know whatever it is candy crush what are you giving your time to are you learning the greatest truths in all of history and I'm not saying it's wrong to play candy crush sometimes don't go there being condemned what are you giving yourself to holy is it to learning the gospels is it to knowing Christ and proclaiming him and as we enter the Lord's Supper May we enter it as men and women who sit together at the Lord's table as co-inheritors of eternal life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word that you've not left us without a guide or without instruction. May we hear it, may we receive it, and may we respond in nothing but submission and praise for your good design. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.